The clientele is changing dramatically. The workforce is not. The administration has decided to empower the same people, structures, and systems that caused harm to people of color in the first place. Knowing that they might experience trauma as a professional. We do hear some really specific examples of racism in the schools. Is, is, is this an emergency? This is not going to be easy. If you think the people that have made change didn't cry at night, didn't feel lonely, identify, ostracized, that's not true. Change doesn't happen without a little bit of pain. Plant those seeds and become those teacher encouragers. If you love this profession, be a teacher encourager. I am a Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. Teach Plus Rhode Island. Teach Plus Rhode Island Policy Fellow. I am a Teach Plus Policy Fellow. I'm from Teach Plus Rhode Island Fellow. Everyone, my name is Eric Kirsch. I'm a professor in the Sociology Department here at Providence College. And I'm part of a group called the Coalition Against Racism here at the college. And we try to work on eliminating discriminatory practices. Uh, at Providence College. We worked on racial profiling, and now we're working on one particular department and how they are discriminating against students of color. And that department is the Department of Elementary and Special Education. Uh, it's a separate department from secondary education. Last year in the graduating class, that department graduated two students of color in a graduating class of 53. That represents just 4%. Uh, the trend is actually in the wrong direction, too, uh, because we actually had uh, five students in 2017 graduate and four students in 2018. Now we're down to two. This is a total failure of the college to diversify teachers in Rhode Island and other parts of the country if they leave Rhode Island after they graduate. This is not due to a lack of interest by students of color in this major. Uh, last year's freshman class saw 20% of the class uh, be interested in majoring. But the sophomore class, it was down to 9%, the junior class 6%, and then 4% in the graduating class. This attrition is due to a two-track policy that privileges white students over students of color. White students are given consideration and second chances, while students of color are told they don't have what it takes to be your teacher, are given extra non-credit classes and tutoring, and encouraged to give up their dream of becoming teachers. Assumptions are made by the department's faculty about how prepared students are for the program based on the color of their skin. These discriminatory policies came to light seven years ago due to the actions of a whistleblower who is speaking today, Dr. Anthony Rodriguez, who joined the department in 2012. Instead of solving the problems that he uh, uncovered, they instead began years and years of harassment designed to silence him. The administration did very little to stop that, and so now we are making these facts public uh, so that 
these problems can be addressed more effectively. The administration has been aware of these problems for at least a decade. They have not ended the discriminatory actions as shown by the declining percentage of students of color who graduate. I know they say they're committed to doing this. Whatever they're doing is not working. You know, when you have 4% students of color in the graduating class. Two years ago, I graduated from Providence College after four long years of studying, battling racism and discrimination. I entered the elementary and special education program, knowing that I had the skills to teach, but wanting to become the most qualified educator I could be. I knew the value of a good education and the privilege of a great education. I entered my college career expecting to gain more teaching experience, and yet at the hands of racist professors and administrators, my college experience as an undergraduate student was simply traumatic. It is no secret that there is a shortage of passionate educators of color in the United States. They enter the field eager to learn how to inspire young minds and something scares them off. So the question is, how do you scare away a passionate future educator? The short answer is, you find the whistleblowers, you traumatize them, and you try to keep them quiet. More specifically, you take an 18-year-old first semester college student who is eager to please and hungry for success and sit her in a room amongst her peers and tell her that this is a difficult profession, but when she hands in her first big lesson plan, you don't give her a grade, but instead you tell her that she should come see you. You tell her that she's going to need to work significantly harder if she wants to keep up with her white counterparts, knowing that you would do and try your best to fail her regardless. When she tells you what inspired her to be a teacher in the first place, and she says it's her inspiration is every bad teacher she's ever had, and that professor who gave a lecture about black kids not being able to perform in school because of genetics, you tell her that's not a good enough reason. You lose a few of her papers, then at the end of the semester, tell her she should have written them again anyways. When she asks you what she needs to do better, you tell her to come see you in her office and let her know that you're worried she is going to struggle through this major instead of telling her what to work on. Tell her that this is going to be too hard for her. When she makes it through the first year and you don't see enough signs of discouragement, you observe a co-taught lesson and tell her that she isn't doing enough for you to give her a grade. So you tell her to rewrite this semester's lesson plans and reflections and suggest that she retake the class so you can observe her teaching alone too. Instill the fear of God in her. You find another professor and tell them to watch her closely this semester so you don't have to do all the heavy lifting on your own. She won't know who to trust and you can ensure that she feels like she doesn't belong here. Belittle her in front of her peers and other professors and her students. Interrupt her lessons to tell her she's not doing enough. When she looks like she's succeeding academically beyond reasonable doubt, she's done everything you've asked and more, you tell her that you're worried about her grade in professionalism. For those of you who don't know what the category of professionalism is, it's like a magician's hat of judgment. You can pull out just about anything you want from it whenever you'd like. Unexcused, excused absences, dress code, hairstyles, facial expressions, body language, handwriting or typed font preferences, page formatting on assignments and more. And luckily it's not written or defined explicitly, so feel free to choose whatever you'd like and grade her as you please. And if you see her walking across campus in sweatpants outside of class hours, 
use that to make your decision. When she asks you what her professionalism grade is based on, tell her to look in the handbook and she'll never find it, so she won't ask you again. When she starts asking you what she needs to do to study abroad, tell her that her grades weren't where they need to be. When she asks more questions, take it upon yourself to change her grade and create additional documentation to back up what you told her before. And that way you can show her how what was supposed to be an A turned into a B minus because professionalism then somehow re-averaged out to a C plus, which is not good enough. Hopefully she's too tired and confused from taking six in-class courses and two off-site student teaching placements at a time. She doesn't look into it, but if she does, remind her that she's still falling behind and should focus on something else. Remind her that this program may not be the one for her, so when she's crying on a sidewalk at 5.30 in the morning in the middle of February because the school building doesn't officially open its doors until 6.55 a.m., she'll be questioning whether or not this is all worth it. If her mother calls you to ask what you're doing to her daughter, you tell her the same thing you said to her child. I think this may be too hard for her. She's just not getting it. But maybe her greatest downfall is that we can't connect because we don't look alike. You remind her that being black is an obstacle by making sure that it is. You do not give her permission to apply for scholarships. You lose some more of her papers. Schedule all important meetings at the same time that she's at her extra teaching placement so you can mark her professionalism grade down a notch again for missing a mandatory meeting. Then you remind her that she's not good enough to study abroad in Italy. So instead, if she's going to go anywhere, she ends up in Belfast, Northern Ireland, where you hope she'll fail. If she ever makes it back to campus, you tell her that none of her work counts for a grade, and now she's behind again and should redo all of the assignments if she ever wants to graduate. Then when she's in the final weeks of her third year in college, you let her know that she's not allowed in the program until she takes the ACT again. Otherwise, she'll never be allowed to student teach. If she advocates for herself and tries to find someone she can trust to guide her, keep her as far away from that person as possible and remind her it's her fault. Let her know that the reason she's so tired is because she should have come to you sooner. By now, you and dozens of your colleagues have intervened to show her just how difficult this major can really be. Do this a couple of times and I'm sure you'll break her. It's been done before, and while not all students are so relentlessly dedicated, she will have to burn out at some point. Hopefully during her senior teaching placement, but something will get her to quit. So, how do you scare a passionate future educator away? You find the ones who refuse to sit silently and you give them hell. We have Dr. Anthony Rodriguez, the faculty member in the elementary and special education department who was the whistleblower, he's going to talk about his experience in that department after he revealed these facts about the discriminatory practices. I taught in New Mexico for 12 years. Um, it's a dynamic state that ranks number one in child poverty. But none of the people that I taught with ever saw deficits in the students that they work with. Upon coming to Providence College, that was the most shocking thing within the elementary and special education department. That not only they saw people of color as full of deficits, but they started isolating and silencing them from the minute I got there. When a college cares about equity and diversity, they will hold people who discriminate accountable. They will tell those who silence and harm them to stop. Otherwise, we are knowingly sheltering those who, whose first instinct when teaching a person of color is to descend into deficit modes of thinking, those seeds of future discrimination. 
these seeds have been able to bear fruit in my department, and I now know without question why there's so few people of color teaching in the classrooms in Rhode Island. It starts with the arbitrary system of privilege within their undergraduate teacher training program and who gets this privilege and who does not. My department over many years in a controlled, focused, and deficit-oriented manner removed people of color from the elementary and special education department. They have done so by creating these biased assessments that have no grounding in empirical research. These assessments, policies, and practices have consistently over time disproportionately harmed black and Latinx students. Under the guise that Ride has required these barriers for licensure, the department has duped and misled our students. What the college has done in response is to coddle, assign innocence, and to provide private tutoring to fully tenured faculty while attempting to cover the issue up with a college-wide branding campaign. Administrators' choice to ignore the harm that the department has caused is a short-term patch that is already unraveling and revealing underlying problems. The administration is quick to assign good intentions and innocence to our department. The administration does not grant the same benefit of doubt to the students of color whose careers they ruin. Our administration has to stop allowing faculty to learn on the backs of people of color. Providence College can, right now, enact systemic change to benefit all students of the college. Yet our administration and department are more interested in exterior appearances than in high leverage, evidence-based practices for inclusion, diversity, and support of those marginalized. The Coalition on Racism has provided universal supports for anyone struggling to breathe in this oppressive environment. We are here because we want to build a better place for those hired and admitted by Providence College. Holding people accountable is that first step. We work in the shadow cast by heroes such as Charles Hamilton Houston, who laid the groundwork of Brown versus Board of Education in his exposure of the separate but equal schools. We are looking to enact real change in Providence College that exposes the branding and cultural competency training for what it is. It is a smokescreen and a choice to take the easy path. We care about our college, we care about our students, and because of this we cannot continue to accept the false promises that come with gradualism. I noticed these problems before my first semester working in a department. When I voiced these concerns, they were first brushed aside as coincidental. Later, when pressed further, I was told that other people in the department had acted inappropriately for decades, but it's not them. It's always not them. It's somebody else. When I continued to ask questions, I was roundly silenced by the department and the administration. This act of silencing students has been a theme for a long time, and it applied to me as well for the past seven years. First made the college formally aware of their practices in the fall of 2014, when I advocated on how we should stop encouraging um, teachers learning ducktails as a behavior management strategy. Now, ducktails for the uh, for the layman is when they ask students to put their hands behind their back and walk down the hallway. It's basically the perp walk, and it's part of this school to prison pipeline that we are training students to do in our schools. And our college has not our college, our department has abided by it for a long time. I later wrote about this in Education Week, entitled "Ducktails Discipline Disrespect Writ Large." I have since, with multiple formal letters, formal letters meetings, and resultant investigations, all of which have not been released to the public, made the college aware of what needs to be changed. I hope that through real discussions on data and research, we would enact apparent changes that become more aligned with evidence-based practices of the 21st century. I was wrong. Over the past seven years, beginning formally in March 21st, 2013, I have been subjected to open and a yielding harassment retaliation by members of my department and beyond, of which the university has done nothing to stop. The goal was to silence my voice and bury the truth. I have paid the price for my advocacy, 
For six years, my department attempted to discredit my work and tarnish my reputation in a systemic paper trail of lies and openly racist statements that they hoped would lead to my firing. They voted to deny my tenure and hoped this false and misleading testimony would influence the college-wide Committee on Rank and Tenure, known as CARD. Fortunately, this committee judged me on my work and not my advocacy, and I stand here before you as a tenured faculty member. Recently, I had to move my office to another building to place myself outside of harm's way. My department has been in receivership for over two years, and I've recently been made aware that the administration has decided to empower the same people, structures, and systems that caused harm to people of color in the first place. These efforts are meant to give an all-clear sign to the community while we continue to do what we have always done. In closing, we do not have the time nor the patience to have administrators and members of the elementary and special education department learn at the expense and on the backs of our students of color. At this point, it's much easier to own the problem and apologize to those harmed than it is to continue to fool ourselves. That branding and private tutoring is ever the answer. We should be humble and admit what we do not know. We need to improve, do good work, stay vigilant, and should be more important, and that should be more important than keeping up our appearances. Protect reputations and save face. This problem is our stumbling stone at PC. Transparency and oversight of my department will lead to significant change and allow for the profound talents of our students to emerge, bringing us closer to God. It is where innocent is lost, profound truths revealed, and essential work begun. Thank you very much. I'm Jennifer Swamberg. I'm currently the Dean of the School of Professional Studies at Providence College, and I'm also a full professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management. Uh, to give you a little bit of background about the School of Professional Studies, it consists of uh, four undergraduate majors, health policy and management, social work, I should say five majors, and then we have three undergraduate uh, education degrees secondary education, music education, elementary and special education. And then we have six masters in education programs. So we have roughly 500 students in undergrad in the School of Professional Studies and almost as many uh, graduate students, uh, part-time graduate students in the education program. Uh, I joined Providence College about two years ago. Uh, prior to that, I was a professor and a researcher in the School of Social Work at the University of Maryland. I've had well over a 25-year career kind of examining how, um, the ways in which social and economic disparities influence uh, the work life, health, and well-being of vulnerable populations. Um, so first of all, I want to say that thank you for asking that question. And you know, it, it, um, I, I, Providence College takes these issues very seriously. And where, as Jackie mentioned, um, this issue of diversity, equity, inclusion uh, is critical to the college from the senior most level all the way down. And quite honestly, um, you know, it was sad to hear the stories. We're sorry that students and faculty have experienced those issues. And quite honestly, uh, we can do better. And we are. Um, you know, we are trying to address these issues. Uh, just to give you a little bit of perspective, um, and then I will kind of drill down a little bit. One of my priorities as the dean has been to create a culture and climate within the school that values all our students. Right? I want one of my priorities has been to ensure that all our students graduate as culturally responsive practitioners. 
and that to ensure that faculty and staff provide an environment in the classroom and beyond that's both inclusive and, ex and equitable. Because ultimately, we want, I want to strive to ensure that we have equity-focused people, policies and practices and, and processes to ensure a positive, uh, equitable experience for all students, faculty, and staff at Providence College. Um, and as you may know, um, in terms of kind of the, the distinct issue, Providence, in order to kind of enter or to get a degree in education at Providence College and across the Rhode Island Department of Education, they have a set criteria um, to gain entry. Um, that is to complete the SAT or the ACT or kind of basic skills tests. PC is a test optional school. So right there, it creates a certain barrier for students who may choose not to take the ACT or SAT. So one of the things that um, we have done and um, that was done prior to my coming to Providence College is so some of the kind of initial admissions uh, um, requirements that were not uh, required by RIDE were removed. And we've worked with RIDE to try to come up with strategies um, that would uh, facilitate or ease the entry into the program. So in addition to, so as a result, RIDE has created a kind of has a new policy where students um, can, um, students who might have taken the ACT, SAT, or the basic skills who have not been able to pass um, or gain the certain, uh, the certain uh, grade, um, they're able to take a one credit course so they can gain entry. Um, I should also kind of step back for a minute and just say that um, given that we have so many programs um, at Providence College, that um, so many education programs at Providence College, and each of them kind of deal with these issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion differently, one of the things that I've done is, Dean, is to make uh, a, a request from the administration to establish a position, um, of a position for um, a position called the Assistant Dean of Education. And I'm proud to say that we have, um, we got approval for that position and had hired um, someone. And her, one of her many roles um, will be to lead an initiative that will put um, kind of equity kind of central to uh, all the education programs. So every student who's graduating with an education degree will have a kind of consistent vision and idea around what equity is because we believe that we wanna ensure that kind of the values, behaviors, and policies and practices that follow um, at, at PC come from, have this kind of equitable um, lens for our students. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, I think one of the questions that um, they raised, I think, um, you know, right now we have about 25% of our incoming freshmen um, are students of color and, we have worked hard at putting a variety of different mechanisms in place to ensure students have the supports that they need in order to continue to be successful. Uh, so we do, we can continue to retain them throughout the, uh, their four years here. Jacqueline Peterson, and I am advisor to the president of Providence College on institutional diversity equity and inclusion. One thing that I would add, um, I think to give it broader context in terms of what uh, Jennifer is saying, is that the college recognizes that the education of, of the students obviously has to be holistic and cannot happen 
in um, within silos. And so therefore, while the School of Professional Studies and in particularly the de Department or Division of Education is preparing teachers, those students will also interact with all of other disciplines and students on the campus. So therefore, as I've said, the challenge of really um, achieving the goal of creating a, a institution that is committed and manifests inclusive excellence has to be something that's permeated throughout the college and that is systemic in the way um, in its organization and practices and policies. And so that's where the broader, you know, 300, you know, thousand foot view of this comes into play. Like when I think about organizational change, right, and whether it's about um, kind of dealing with kind of, um, kind of systemic inclusion or systemic racism or trying to make an organization more family friendly, which is something that I've worked on for many, many years, oftentimes in the beginning stages, it tends to be policies and practices that are not necessarily um, integrated in a kind of coherent manner, right? And then as people begin to uh, look at their own kind of values um, related to the said issue, there's opportunities to um, kind of look at both values and behaviors and how that may, how values might be impacting behaviors and providing opportunities for people to begin to kind of rethink some of their kind of established beliefs. And ultimately what you want over time in terms of organizational change is to Jackie's point, it becomes more um, systemic and that uh, an initiative is kind of integrated and these issues around uh, inclusive excellence is kind of permeated. So it's not necessarily, so and to Jackie's point, uh, inclusive excellence happens around campus. We're working on that in a variety of different ways, everything from kind of, um, educating faculty about issues pertaining to diversity, equity, inclusion in the classroom, looking at their own individual beliefs and their own identities and how their own identities might impact their behaviors. And uh, ultimately, one of the things that I hope that we can do within um, the education division is really, to, is really begin to weave together these policies and practices in such a way that we can create a systemic uh, change where everyone is looking at education from an equity lens. Every decision, every interaction is done through an equity lens. And, you know, that takes quite, that's not something that, that happens overnight. And I, and I think it needs to be, and I think Providence College has tried to take the very systematic approach to bringing this about. And, first of all, really looking at strong, diverse representation. And as uh, was mentioned, the diversity um, of students has grown considerably in the last several years. And the second piece, I think, is, um, as was also mentioned, equity-minded decisions. And that is across the board, not only, you know, in the policies, but the behaviors and then the practices um, in terms of how 
the college delivers its educational experience for students. And then thirdly, I would say cultural responsiveness in learning, in the learning environment, not only through the curricula but, and pedagogy, but also in the living and learning environment. What is the climate like at camp on the campus for all folks to feel welcome and included? And where there may be gaps in um, achieving that to the level that the college wants to achieve it, how do we address those gaps? What are the specific steps and actions that should be taken to address those? One of the other charges, if you will, of the new assistant dean of education who will be coming in is to um, be out in the community, to have a community presence. Uh, the woman that we've hired, her name is Dr. Beth Schaefer. She is an, uh, um, she's an urban educator. Uh, she both grew up um, in an urban environment and went to kind of an urban public school. She's worked in urban um, settings. She was instrumental in the public-private partnership between Clark uh, University and the city of Worcester. So she has a lot of experience of bridging the gap between kind of public schools and uh, private um, institutions of higher education. So one of the things that she's been thinking about is how do, she, how do we create a more formal set of relationships with the Providence Public Schools and the Rhode Island school systems in general and having it in a much more kind of systemic way. You know, one way may be how we approach um, student teaching and whether or not we engage in certain, um, you know, with certain districts. Uh, you know, other, um, other ideas that she has is kind of partnering with the schools to try to develop a more formal pipeline for students who might be interested in education as a major and whether or not they, we could create some kind of uh, program for students who want to come to Providence College and seeing what kind of resources that quite honestly that we could um, offer to the community around various types of faculty development opportunities. So I am that, so one of the things that I'm really excited about is that with this position, it's the first time that we've had one person who their sole responsibility is teacher preparation programs at Providence College. Right? Under the, my leadership, in addition to all my other responsibilities, um, around education, I have lots of other responsibilities. So this will be one person who can begin to think about in a very strategic, systematic way how to contribute, how PC will contribute to the community around teacher preparation and education programs. And she, she's, um, she's phenomenal, and I, I really believe that she'll have um, a significant impact um, in a short period of time, and hopefully working collectively with our faculty who also want to get involved. Um, I should also note that we've been um, active in engaging community uh, faculty members or teachers in a variety of different committee work at Providence College. So we can begin to develop these relationships. We've hired some teachers to um, be an adjunct faculty at Providence College. And I know our, um, some of our faculty have been trying to offer, um, have been a part of the, um, the Ryland Foundation um, tenure plan that, um, and other committee work I know faculty have been involved in. Well, I think I'll add to that. Uh, we have worked with through the institutional, the Office of Institutional Diversity, um, Equity and Inclusion. We've worked with the edu 
leaders of color in Rhode Island in terms of uh, establishing partnerships and having various professional development opportunities um, you know, on campus through our one of our, our main areas is the, the center um, at Moore Hall, whose, whose real mission is, part of its mission is to bring and build community partnerships between the college and the um, external community with and clearly education being one of those uh, foci. And we've also, with respect to that, and Steve can speak with to this as well. There is a um, advisory council, a community advisory council that the college has established to really provide of leaders around Providence community to provide insights on and advice on a number of areas um, that the college is is um, integral to as being a part of the. Providence community. Hey, if I can just build on that, uh, this is Steve Morano. I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs and Community Relations at the college. Um, two points, one in reference to the Community Advisory Council that Jackie just mentioned. Um, when we put that council together, one of the things that we wanted to achieve with it was First of all, to make sure that the representation on that council was was pretty broad based among communities of color. So we have African American representation, we have Latinx representation, we have Southeast Asian representation. And one of the things that we ask our council members is to to help us understand how the college is being perceived within their respective communities. So we're trying to get information from the, you know, the ground up, if you will, about how people are thinking and talking about Providence College and what are some of the things that we might need to address from their perspective. Um, the other point I want to mention is that we're involved at the highest levels of the college as well. So our president, Father Brian Shanley, uh, along with other college presidents in Rhode Island, has been meeting with the new commissioner, uh, Angelica Infante Green, to talk about how the colleges can get involved um, specifically with the city of Providence, but also with, with other school systems throughout the state as well. Um, and so he's been part of those meetings and I am part of a working group of staff uh, that is meeting regularly with uh, the commissioner's chief of staff to talk about initiatives that we can get involved in either individually or ideally collaboratively so that you know three or four of us are, are working together and pooling resources to, to uh, help address issues within the city of providence as i mentioned earlier you know to your question ray of what has changed i would say that this isn't a recent focus. I would say that from my perspective, that this is something that the college has been working toward for a number of years. And I think like with any other um, institution, this is, it's not something that um, 
it's not it's an ongoing issue you know you don't absolutely bring about change and everything is a hundred percent uh set in um it's it's ongoing and you have to give your attention and your focus to it in a very consistent and ongoing manner and i what i think has perhaps changed is the realization that this is something that um, requires our continuous focus. And as part of, of our long-term, you know, the directions and planning at the college, it has to be foundational to everything that the college is thinking about and doing and exercising going forward. Our final speaker is Victor Terry. He's a graduate with a master's degree from PC in education. He now teaches in Boston. And he's gonna talk about the importance of having teachers of color to teach students of color. Hello. I have made the decision to dedicate my life to teaching and learning with young people. This decision was not made lightly. I made this decision knowing that I would not receive much pay for the long hours of work in which I tore over sixth grade essays and papers. I made this decision knowing that I was prioritizing the future of America over my own financial wealth. I did not make this decision knowing that oftentimes when I go into a room or a meeting, I will be the only person of color in that room advocating for students of color. As a black male teacher, what keeps me in the classroom is the enthusiasm students have for me when they realize that I not only see them, but I celebrate their intersecting identities. When they see that they will not be interrogated for their culture, that they are able to come into the classroom and simply be, and not have to perform to a standard of white supremacy that keeps them relegated to a substandard place in our society. As a black male teacher, I've had to fight a lot of these fights alone. It is important and vital that we have more teachers of color in the classroom. More teachers of color will also lead to more school leaders of color, which will also lead to more policy makers of color. You see the ripple effect. Thank you. Hello, my name is Raymond Steinmetz. I'm a Teach Plus Senior Policy Fellow. Thank you for listening to the Teach Plus Podcast. Please join us next week as we discuss Rhode Island's efforts to improve social emotional learning and implement culturally relevant and sustaining curriculum across the state. Look for new episodes every Friday on all major podcast platforms.